Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Nathan Collier with you today. We have a very special episode on the show today. Jim is moving from the host chair to the guest chair as I interview him so that you can hear more of his story. Now, many of you know Jim as the host of the show and also as the founder of Pursuit, but Jim had an entire legal career before starting Pursuit. He grew up in Australia, as many of you know. He was a junior associate, a senior associate, he made partner, uh, and then he took an opportunity to move across the globe and start a new office for one of the largest firms in the world. Those experiences, they gave him a unique view into the business of legal, uh, and that includes some of the things that he thought were just, they were broken. As you'll hear, those insights and aha moments, they really are, they're a big part of Pursuit's origin story. They're also why Jim is so passionate about bringing change to the legal industry, and that includes the impact he believes we'll see as more and more companies increase their use of value-based pricing. There are so many personal lessons and insights in this one, I know you'll enjoy hearing more of Jim's story. So as Jim always says, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Jim, people people know you as the founder of Pursuit, right? Technology platform. But you had you had a whole life before you became the founder of of this tech company. So can, oh, t- tell me about that. It's a distant memory, but yes, <laughs> yes, there was life before Pursuit. How far back does one go, Nathan? Um, let, let's let's stick to the professional career. I think my first year of work was 89. The usual traditional path in big law. Had all of the 90s at uh, Australia's premier law firm at that time, Mallison, Stephen Jakes, now Kingwood Mallison's. Pumping out as much time as I could, because that's how we were measured as young lawyers. Um, That was all, I won't say it was the only measure, but certainly if you didn't uh, achieve and exceed your billable hours target, um, then it kind of didn't matter. So the 90s is a bit of a blur. Any things I can remember when I look back is the birth of my children. Um, I got married and the two promotions, and it's literally two promotions for senior associate um, and then partner. Promotions in law firms, they, they are so few and far between. It's literally a senior associate, maybe senior consultant and partner. That's it. That's over a 10-year horizon. And then between 2000 or 1999 and 2007 was partnership, but as I said, Mallison's at the time, uh, sometime in Melbourne and sometime in Perth. People who don't know Australia yeah. won't necessarily know that that's completely... Okay, so, so yeah. Perth's claim to fame as a city, of course, is this the world's most remote capital city? Um, yeah. It is, of course, on the, um, uh, on the West Coast. Of Australia, simple flying time was you know New York to LA. I think mean, it was about right. four or five hours, or five six hours, right. something like that. So, so that was the that was the first um, my first taste, if you like, of trying something a little bit different. It was a whole lot different. It was packing up the family. It was leaving. It was setting. It was starting a brand new practice in a new, new jurisdiction, but with the same firm. That was two thousand and five to two thousand and seven, and then two thousand and seven, um, I got an offer from a firm I'd never heard of before. So I'm done an offer to head up the dispute practice out of Dubai. Nathan, I didn't even know where Dubai was. I did. <laughs> I, I could barely point to the Middle East. I look back at that, I think, why on earth, how, how did I land that? And why was I 
why did I get picked? And there was a couple of, a, a, a few little um, uh, bits of serendipity kind of came together where someone said to me, uh, or someone said to someone else, hang on, I know a guy. So can I tell them the story about that? Because I tell that story to my to my children. Right. Just because somebody said, hang on, I know a guy, that created an opportunity for me to have a completely new career path, one where I picked, packed up the bags, took the family and moved to the Middle East. When someone is thinking, hang on, I know someone, be that someone. And how do you mm. be that someone? The way you interact with people, the way you make them feel, how you socialize, how you work with them, so that you come top of mind when there's an opportunity. On the negative side, I have had people approach me about other people. Um, hey, Jim, what do you know and think about X? Um, we're thinking about X for a you know a significant position. And Nathan, because of my experience, I just did the little, just the little head shake. I wasn't planning to be in a meeting late, but it was an experience or experience I had or the, the cultural fit, whatever it was, or the person just wasn't, if I can put it this way, a good egg. Yeah. Now, Nathan, that person will never know. And the two or three occasions that that's happened to me where I've just given the little shake, those people will never know. Yeah. And, and in a sense, you... So the point I make is you never know the opportunities you um, you might miss out on because of the way, honestly, the way you might have treated people, handled yourself, the level of empathy you had. When somebody's thinking, I know a girl or I know a guy, do your best because there are opportunities out there that you may lose or gain without even knowing why. So you land in Dubai. I, I love this piece of the story. You land in Dubai and and and... What happens? Oh, I'll never forget. So it's <laughs> it's one July two thousand and seven. Yeah. Okay. So if anyone knows the Middle East in July, I remember stepping off the plane onto the tarmac, and it was a tarmac, um, the old Dubai airport. There, I remember as soon as I actually, as soon as I stepped off the plane, my glasses absolutely fogged up. I couldn't see in front of me. Um, this blistering heat, which was Celsius over 40, it was well over 100 degrees. And I'll never forget um, getting straight, well, getting my luggage, getting to a taxi, getting to a hotel, change into the office because it was my first day starting at DLA Piper in um, Dubai. Hello to the receptionist. She showed me to my um, uh, to my wood-panelled 1980s looking office <laughs> and um, I sat down, and there is the. Uh, I've got a. I've got a computer on my desk, and there is two email. There's one, um, which is a hello from IT, and then there's the other one, which is from the managing partner, uh, David Church. I'll never forget his name. Hi, Jim. Welcome. Can I have your business plan for developing the dispute litigation and regulatory practice in the Middle East? <laughs> I remember looking at that email, looking around, <laughs> not a single, I didn't have a single file. I didn't have a single contact. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the law. I didn't even know where to find the law, let alone what it was. And when I did find it, eventually I couldn't read it because it was all in Arabic. Yeah. And Nathan, I just never forget um, an overwhelming, like a tide of, oh my God, 
what have I done? You temporarily, at least that day, you had left your family behind in Australia too. I had. I'd left yeah. the family because the plan was I would go there for the first um, first, first few months and end up being close to around about six months. I would help set up. And then if I fast forward by 2013, I had uh, what was then the most profitable practice in the whole of the DLA Piper globally. Um, we had an, we had a team of something like 25 lawyers. We were running the highest profile cases uh, the firm had seen out of the Middle East. And all I could think of at that time was, uh, well, a few things. One, how kind of proud I was, um, particularly of the tea. The, the second was this feeling of, I, I can do anything. If I can, if you can do that, I mean, without making it sound corny and that, but when you look back and I thought to myself, if I can do that, and that was the hardest, but the most professionally rewarding part of my career to date. Yeah. Um, uh, amongst that, of course, or in that time, of course, we had the global financial crisis and, yeah. you know, by 2008, which was only an eight, 18 months in, we had people fleeing from Dubai, literally expats, literally leaving their cars at the airport and getting out, coming out the other end. It was something I just felt incredibly proud of. And it was, when I look back at it now, uh, it did a few things. One, it gave me the confidence essentially to start from scratch. And the second thing it gave me is it did, it, it, it did feel like, honestly, it felt in part the potential peak of my professional career I wasn't sure how I was going to better it um, because I went back to Australia for a couple of years I think it was 2014 15 and it was you know I had my sense was I'm not sure how I'm going to beat that <laughs> um, and I think that's a kind of the, the that that's part of the story in the build-up to deciding to um, start pursuit um, right. that notion of that this is going to sound really corny. Not so much my work here is done, but I'm just not sure how I'm going to do any better. Uh, that was part of it, but th but there are other really mu much um, much more significant factors for me, you know, personal and professional. On the personal side, you get to 2015 for me was the year of turning 50. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of realizations. One is that you're likely to be well past the halfway mark of your life and certainly well past the halfway mark of your career. Okay, so that time of reflection saying, and the way I looked at it was, okay, so what does 50 to 60 look like? People have heard me say this before. And is it just a kind of a bit of a repeat of, 40 to 50, which wasn't too different from 30 to 40. And certainly professionally, there was, you know, of course, the overlay of Perth, Dubai, and all the achievements there. But right. um, that that was one thing, you know, approaching 50, thinking about um, what does 50 to 60 look like? Right. It's got to be better than that. So you had, it's, you had this milestone birthday. You have all of these great ideas. And I've, I've seen some of the early versions of what Pursuit was in the very early days. So so I'll ask you this question knowing the answer, but was Pursuit an instant 
dramatic success from the first day? That, now, that, there's a leading question. We all, <laughs> we all know the answer to that. Um, what, it's funny, Nathan, when I think back to those early days, and it, it, I, it's almost like it's, that, it's naivety, but it's necessary. Right. Um, it's almost a requirement, I think, of founding any business. Because if you're, I always say, if you really knew how hard it is, you'd be absolutely insane <laughs> to try. But um, so those early days, I'll never forget. Um, I'll never forget our very first RFP. Um, it was nothing short of embarrassing. Um, I remember begging, borrowing, stealing, doing whatever we had to do to convince a client and law firms, non-paying you know, client and law firms to run um, an RFP through pursuit. You know, initially kind of secondments, then very basic um, scopes of work. The very first one, it, it was, it, it, well, I've described it as embarrassing, but it was literally like Band-Aids sticking, trying to stick together bits and pieces of workflow that created so much more work than value it delivered. Um, but you've heard me say before to um, uh, to the team, uh, and I thought about that example when we recently hit $10 billion in um, law firm proposal value coming through pursuit. Right. I took them back to that very first RFP, and I said, absolutely embarrassing, but guess what? It was the first step. It was a step. In fact, there were hundreds of steps or thousands that took place before then, and yeah. thousands that take place after them. But unless you take that step, you can't take the next one and the next one and the one that follows. Um, and for me, it's a real, it's not a lesson just in business. That's a lesson in life. Any kind of improvement uh, or any goals or outcomes that you truly value, professional, personal relationships, they are never overnight successes. They are the product of incremental, consistent, sustaining effort, often daily over time. It applies to everything. And that's, you know, personal and professional. And that's where you see real growth and the um, uh, outcomes and things that you really, really value. So an important lesson. But unless you take the first step, as I said, you can't take the second, the third, and every right. incremental step. You had a pretty clear understanding of some things that were broken in the way that legal yes. worked in the in the business. So, so if we talk about the business of legal, yep. right? And I think you had you had this vision for a different way that law firms and and, and companies yep. could work together. Yep. Um, where did that vision come from? Was there like an aha moment for you? Okay, so so one moment that does stand out for me. Um, I remember. Um, reading and was probably as early as 2013 or 14 um, when the very first seed was kind of planted and it was uh, a famous um, Harvard Business Review case study that Sylvia Hodges Silverstein that now the well pre previously the uh, the founder and CEO of buying legal counsel she did a case study on GSK um, and the process that GSK started running I think it was as early as 2008 and coming out yep. of the global financial crisis around essentially um, having firms compete 
for work on a very clearly defined scope of work, often litigation being broken down in phases. And she talked about this case study and uh, what GSK had done to essentially create um, a platform in order to achieve transparency, competition, clear scopes of work and pricing along those clear scopes of work. Right. And for me, that that was certainly one of the aha moments. In what way? When I looked at that, I said, makes absolute sense. Um, it drives to value, drives to outcomes, not just, just ours. And secondly, I thought to myself, um, well, if GSK can do that for their own legal requirements, why can't I create a platform where all in-house legal teams can use and collaborate on in terms of all of their learnings and they can use a single platform to do all of their engagements of outside counsel in a way which achieves the same kind of outcomes where a scope is clearly defined, um, uh, the parameters are all clear for the various firms, they can all price on the basis of those parameters and outcomes um, rather than uh, on um, a billable hour and they can then you can achieve transparency and competition um, across those firms. So it kind of, that was an aha moment for me. If there's a company out there doing it for themselves, and that's often a sign that there's a problem in, a, in the market, a company builds a tool, if you like, or customizes a tool internally to solve a problem. That's a really good sign that there's a problem in the marketplace. And for me, it was an easy um, um, a, a, an easy way to think about well that if that's one company doing it for itself why can't we create um, a platform so that all companies can use a single platform uh, to achieve the same kind of outcomes and objectives and that aligns and you know really well with this notion of moving away from um, uh, simple simply hourly rates and really focused okay. on outcomes it's a very innovative thought for somebody who was at the time a partner I don't know if it was innovative, although I have always said um, the, the pages that I would gravitate to in the newspaper, we had newspapers back then, <laughs> uh, the pages I would gravitate to were always, and the bios that I would gravitate to were the entrepreneurial pages of bios. Okay, so there was a... I reckon there was always a little bit of me was saying, I wonder whether I should have done this or whether I would have been better at this. And then when I got to that 50 point, uh, and you've heard me say this before, and when you know, the culmination of the factors that I've talked about too, including the aha moment, you know, what had I achieved in Dubai, what I could see um, uh, in, in the legal market, the problems there, and the recognition that um, my time was limited when I put all of those together, along with this, what, what I felt was a bit of an entrepreneurial itch, uh, I put all of those together and I applied um, what you've heard me talk about before, the nursing home test. Hmm. That test where you, where you picture yourself in the nursing home, you're 90 plus years old, is um, uh, you've got that blanket tight, um, tightly wrapped around your legs, um, your mental faculties are all there. Maybe everything else is not quite there, but, and then you're thinking to yourself, you're reflecting, um, 
and uh, and you're asking yourself, uh, or what do you envisage asking yourself? I wonder what would have happened if I did. Um, are you asking yourself that question, or are you saying to yourself, "I'm glad"? And so I got to a point. I've I kind of convinced myself that regardless of the outcome, I will not die wondering. And that that nursing home test, I recommend it to everyone, not for just professional, but certainly for personal too. Mm-hmm. Um, the grudges we hold, the um, you know, the missteps in our lives, the all of that thing. Thinking back, how am I going to think the challenges? Personal and professional, how am I going to think about this when I'm 90? You had this understanding of some of what was broken and legal. You had this vision for what could be in the future. You could see how it could work on the client side from that case study. I think the one other piece to it is a good marketplace when it works, it works for both sides of the equation. I think you saw that too, because I think the 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 firm side of it, you've told a story where you say you you put together, you know, proposals to put in and you got crickets back so so what did you see from the firm side that could that could be changed in this sort of new marketplace that might exist so often as a firm uh, you would be go through a process to be put on a panel panel of firms and it's like a preferred supplier list if you like so you'd undergone certain what whatever that process was and it's usually a qualification process of some kind so we would go to all of this work, we would create these huge pictures, uh, these huge, you know, 50 or 100 page PowerPoint decks as to why we should be on um, the panel. And it was an enormous effort um, by the entire, you know, let's say the BD, um, the, the business development team, the pitch team, the practice areas and so forth, putting together all this. And, and we'd be told, yes, we made it on the panel. And they'd be cheering and so forth. And then that's when the crickets, <laughs> the crickets <laughs> appeared one by one. <laughs> uh, so um, all this work to get on a panel and then really no visibility around the work that's being distributed across the panel and no opportunity to put your foot forward and demonstrate that you are best place at the matter level. It's all yeah. well and good to be a preferred and a qualified supplier, but it means nothing at all um, unless you're being given an opportunity to win work. So from a law firm perspective, the benefit that I saw was um, moving away from all of this effort to pre-qualify and then hearing crickets um, to being given continuous opportunity um, to uh, put your foot forward at the matter level Okay, in a way which was absolutely fair, trans had a level of transparency so you could see, for example, what you were winning, what you were losing, and why you were losing. Yeah. Um, I always, you know, we, we had, we often get the question um, uh, for with new um, potential customers that we speak to, what do the law firms think when you? Um, uh, when they find out that their pricing um, can be visible, albeit anonymized. In other words, if one firm puts forward a price of $50,000, they can see at the other anonymized firm, does it $40,000? And so uh, I would often be asked by clients or potential clients, 
what do the firms think about that? Um, and they are surprised to hear that we created that feature at the request of law firms. Firms. Yeah. And when I explain it, they say, oh, it makes perfect sense. And I explain it this way. So if you're a firm, what would you prefer to know? To, what position would you prefer to be in? I don't know what the pricing of my competitors are, or I do know, and I can decide whether or not I want to beat that or whether I bow out um, or whether I stick to my, well, I'm not changing my price because I can, I'm convinced that the other features of my proposal should be sufficient uh, so that I can um, be awarded the work. From, from a firm side, it is really, as I said, to move away from, you know, all of this effort to pre-qualify and then not being given an opportunity to be giving that opportunity continuously and then learning, learning what I should be, what as a firm I should be pitching for, what I might need to bow out of because there are other firms and that's what a marketplace does. It tells you, um, you know, where the market is for a particular kind of um, uh, service delivery and the firm can choose to actually work its way to, let's say, operationalize and get better at delivering service so it can meet the market, or it might choose to say, you know what, that's not, that's a market or a practice area that we can't, we, we haven't been able to win in and we don't want to invest more resources. And that that's the natural kind of uh, market forces of any marketplace that has transparency, competition, and opportunity. You're describing a world where law firms should have more opportunities, not, not less. What transparency, opportunity, feedback that they may not have had before, data-backed decisions. I think it, you're, you're also describing a world that doesn't run on the hourly, on the hourly rate. So, so you're describing a world where firms are pitching themselves based on the value that they deliver, not on the number True. of hours that they, that they bill. So how does value-based pricing sort of fit into that equation? Well, what we've seen in the last you know, short of 12 months um, what we've seen around the impact that AI has had across industries very broadly and, and also specifically um, to legal, because I think the two um, are very much related. Here's how I think about it too. Um, uh, time, up until now, time has been at the true value in legal. That's what we we valued, and it's that, Time is also the currency with which in-house teams essentially manage their law firm relationships. That's what we value. That's what we pay for. Um, that's what, that's where hourly rates come from. You know, what other industry do we call um, lawyers or any profession timekeepers? I you know, think about that part. That says so much. <laughs> that says so much, doesn't it, about... Uh, as to who we are in the industry, what we think of, and how we how we think of each other as timekeepers. Um, now, think about the impact that AI is having on time. On time is a valuable, and it's time required to generate knowledge, to generate output. Um, uh, one thing I think. What, what we're seeing AI do is slowly but surely starting to take apart any notion that time of itself, time to create knowledge is value. Um, and I think soon 
I think so. What you'll find is the cost of distributing knowledge will fall to zero. That will be the natural, I think, progression of how AI develops. Just like the cost of distributing what we've seen in the past, call it music, ends up falling to zero. I think that's what's going to happen with knowledge. I certainly believe that's what's going to happen with legal knowledge. So the the technical answer to a question, if you like, which is what lawyers do. They go away, they research, they come back, and they spend hours creating that answer, knowledge, that answer to the question, which is knowledge. I think that, uh, and, the, and the value has in the past been seen, how much time did it take to create that knowledge? Right. I just think in the it's certainly in the medium to long term that is no longer a sustainable business model from a law firm perspective and no longer going to be acceptable by in-house teams because because we will see that the knowledge in itself can appear very quickly. It needs to be checked, verified, responsibly used and so forth, but um, I think we'll see AI start to distribute more and more valuable knowledge, um, decreasing or um, the price of that distribution until it gets pretty close to zero. So then law firms and the legal industry will have to develop a new muscle around valuing something else. And that hence, that's, that, that's where I see the marrying of value-based pricing with value-based outcomes. Okay, what is the outcome we're looking to achieve? Because typically the outcome is not a piece, not necessarily at least a piece of knowledge. That bit's going to get easier and easier and faster and cheaper, and that won't be where the value is. So the entire industry starting to build pricing and muscle around what is the outcome we're looking to achieve um, and what is the true value of that outcome and it won't yeah. be by like accumulating the number of hours to deliver that outcome so so i that's how i see you know everything that we've talked about um start to converge to the importance um of value-based pricing and, and it's almost i'd say it's unarguable nobody in any audience when you're out there with gc's um, certainly any in-house audience. If you ask the question, who loves hourly billing? <laughs> Nobody puts their hand up. <laughs> um, but it's an evil that, that the industry has lived with because they've the industry has accepted there hasn't been a better alternative. Right. And, and the pursuit, the mission is, no, there is a better alternative. And it's around building muscle, know-how, um, and an industry that's focused on outcomes. And then yeah. all of the beneficial, you know, we've talked about the poor health outcomes when you measure by reference to just hours of how many um, hours you can work and the, um, and the bias that it creates, being able to shift to value-based outcomes and a focus on solving problems and the next generation two of lawyers um, that are focused on not how many hours they can build, but how they can solve problems and often solve problems with technology. That's an exciting 
industry to yeah. be a part of? Well, I think if I put my, if I go back and to my old like MBA studies and those kinds of things, I think when we, when we read, you know, about businesses that did prefer, like services of, of all different kinds from, from, from realtors to home builders and things like most other service industries run on some sort of value-based billing. It's either, you know, a fixed percentage or a fixed fee, or it's a monthly, right. Depending on, on the model and legal. I think the AI thing is accelerating yep. that, that shift in legal, but it was happening 10 years ago when you read that paper too, right? Like it, yeah, it's, it's not new. <laughs> correct. Correct. Um, but like any transformational change in an industry, look, particularly legal, it it's absolutely takes time. There are seeds yeah. and those seeds start to sprout and those little shoots and those shoots are, and that's what's happening. But I think, um, uh, I think certainly in the, let's say the 2010 to 20, there were seedlings and sprouts yep. here and there. Um, I think um, over the last few years, we've certainly seen much more significant developments, more established roots, if I can put it that way, um, which are uh, which are going to create the foundation for you know I, I call it new muscle, but um, new behaviours, new muscle, uh, new way of working in the industry, which is going to I just absolutely convinced going to benefit everyone. Um, because we'll be focused on what actually counts, um, not the output um, or the also not the effort that we can put in, but solving problems in, in the most efficient and cost-effective way, without worrying about yeah how much time that right. takes. Realistically, so if I if you put your your firm hat on, you know your firm partner hat on from from years ago. Um, what, what do you think the transition will look like over the next few years? Do you think the billable hour will just go away? Or do you think it's more a matter of of clients finding more and more situations to, to bring in value-based pricing? Yeah. So, so I think it's certainly the latter. I, I, this is not, there's certainly not a turn of switch and the billable hour disappears. I think it, um, to some degree, it will always play a role, but I think it's going to play less and less a role so that the, you know, I think on pursuit, you've got over seventy percent of matters that go through are on an alternative fee arrangement of some kind that is not billable hours. Funny how we call it an alternative fee <laughs> arrangement, isn't it? <laughs> Rather than HSBC call it an effective fee arrangement or just yep. a fee arrangement. Yeah. Uh, yep. uh, so, so what I think you will see in the industry as it is um, clients in the broad industry moving. So the percentage of work that is done under a fee model, which is not the billable hour, will just steadily increase. And as we develop in the learnings and we expand beyond matters that we thought, you know, into matters that we previously thought could not be the subject of an outcome-based fee arrangement, um, new learnings, and then we creep further. So this is this will take time, absolutely, and you know, part of it is going to be generational too. Uh, part of it will be um, that as you know, new lawyers uh, or the the new cohort of you now, let's say, partners in law firms start or senior associates, you know, moving to the partners as they because they will have developed you know different muscles um, and they will have a stronger focus. I think on the value-based time of outcomes and the older model of protecting kind of relationships and keeping them 
very close to you and um, sticking to what has worked. Um, I think over time, it's not going to be open up, but over time, um, uh, the pressures that we've talked about will, will start to erode that. Um, yeah. And as those senior partners start to retire to the golf course sunset, it'll get <laughs> slightly easier and easier as that time goes by. Interesting. If there's if there's one thing you want people to remember from this conversation, Jim, what would that be? Look, I, I think it is the importance of recognizing um, and and everyone doing their bit. Uh, to think about how I'm going to manage my relationships, the work that I do with my law firms on a way that is driving towards outcomes, that is priced, that's driving the right behaviours um, and focus on delivering results, not focused on effort and thinking, um, always thinking about that and thinking about new ways to be you know, structuring services, uh, to be thinking about those outcomes in a way which... You know, whether it's the use of technology, technology plus, you know, other service providers, ultimately that's what clients want. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the key, for me, the key takeaway, everyone to be thinking about how do we move the industry so that we're all focused on delivering the outcomes that the customer and the client is looking for. Love it. Jim, this is awesome. Exciting times. Fantastic. All right. Great to speak. Always love talking about myself, don't I, Nathan? I could, I could go on for hours, couldn't I? <laughs> it is relevant, though. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting time in in the industry. I think those of us who are are sort of just interesting in the in the business topics. I think it's fascinating to to see how things have been changing. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.